Welcome to Beethoven was a Rockstar. In this podcast, we are exploring the limits between music styles and why we created so many labels to define them. My name is Alexander Rieche, I'm the conductor of Night of the Proms and the music director of the Henderson Symphony Orchestra. I'll be interviewing iconic figures from both classical and pop music to find where the boundaries are and break through them. Nile Rodgers needs no introductions. He's a legend in the music industry, he was responsible for the most famous songs in the dance era with his band Chic, and his collaborations with David Bowie, Madonna, Daft Punk and Diana Ross not only changed the course of those artists' careers, but also made a mark in the pop culture world. What few people know is his background as a classical musician, composer and conductor, and that's what we are going to explore in this episode. Without further ado, let's get started. Let me tell you a little bit what is this podcast about. So when I started with the proms as the conductor, I felt I confused the music industry, not the, the pop industry, of course, because I've not, I was not part of that before, but the classical industry. Everybody was asking me like, But Alex, you were working here, you're working there, you know, you're working with this orchestra and this orchestra, and now you're conducting pops. And I was kind of like, what do you mean with I'm conducting pops? And then they often ask me, but do you see any difference? And I said, of course not, you know, like, and as I always said, because I've come from a family that not from non a non-musician family, musical, but not non-musician family. I always tell them, yeah, of course. I mean, I don't see any difference because Beethoven was a rock star. So, And I agree with you a thousand percent. <laughs> so you, you probably don't know my story, but um, when I was younger, I was primarily, uh, as a matter of fact, I was totally a classical musician. And um, in, in the world of classical music, especially when I was younger, There was not one, not one black concert guitarist in the world. Not one. I couldn't find one. It was, you know, you know, uh, John Williams, Julian Bream, mm -hmm. Yepes, you know, but not not one. And um, and I remember my tutor organizing a recital for me at Lincoln Center in New York, which is incredible. It was the, the library of the performing arts, which for a young musician, a young, young classical musician, to me, that's almost the same as playing Carnegie Hall. I mean, it was really great. And I remember playing the performance really well. The program I played was uh, the 20 etudes from uh, Fernando Sor. And, um, and I played them, I, not being egotistical, but I had seen Maestro um, Andres Segovia play the same 20 etudes at some other point in my life. And he was older at that point, and I was young, and you know, <laughs> and I was enthusiastic, and I wanted to make my teacher happy, and the other students, and everybody that had come, and I played the program very well, and they were so excited. And I remember as we were walking away from Lincoln Center, I tried to play the tapes in my mind. Okay, who am I trying to be now? Because as artists, right? I mean we pattern ourselves to some extent after heroes that we yeah. like. We want to be like them. And I'm thinking, and I couldn't think of one. I, I said, well, I can't be 
John Williams. I can't be Julian Bream. Um, and I kept thinking of all these great concert guitarists and I couldn't think of one. I couldn't even think of any women at that time. Now we have many more, mm-hmm. but then there, there wasn't any, at least none that were on the level of, of Segovia or being able to play a concert like John Williams. And my my tutor was happy, but I was sad, even though I was the performer. Huh. And that's when I switched from classical to jazz. And at least I said to myself, well, I could take this theoretical knowledge that was essential with classical music, especially when you're learning. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when you're when you're young and you're, you know, I'm telling you what you know, but when you're young and you're you're just coming up, it's essential to learn theory and the basics and learn how to read music, uh, especially if you're going to be a working musician. And I always imagined myself being part of a symphony orchestra. I didn't care what chair I was sitting and what orchestra I was playing with because I started out as um, you know, playing woodwinds, flute, and then clarinet. And I oh, you played the flute to, too. But I, I started switch to clarinet, and clarinet was great for me because when I started to play guitar, it has the same written range. The B flat clarinet has the same written range as the guitar. Like low E, three ledger lines below the staff is the same as the low E on the guitar. It's like. Perfect. <laughs> now all my etudes from clarinet, I could switch to guitar. And that made me pretty valuable to the New York recording scene because in those days, you have to just walk into the studio, look at the chart, play the song, leave and go to the next job. So as you say, music is music. And it's yeah. interesting that you mentioned that because it reminds me, I, I didn't know that you had the classical guitar in your background as well. I knew about the clarinet, but I thought that you switched to guitar and you went directly to pop because I remember you mentioning that you were studying um, Beatles songs. And it reminds me a little bit the story of Nina Simone. When I saw her documentary, I was so heartbroken because uh, she was being trained to become a classical pianist. Mm -hmm. And then Curtis didn't accept her and and then you know the rest of history like she she was i i am a huge fan of hers like i i'm like genius genius no she is she's phenomenal and a force of nature i wish i could have like made her once you know just to you know feel her energy and she was friends of my parents uh, i just wanted to throw this in i played her last performance at carnegie hall oh my god yeah. and how was that it was amazing, but sad. Um, she was suffering at that time, I guess, of some form of dementia or memory loss, but she remembered my nickname from when I was a child. Um, my, when I was a child, uh, people called me Pud, and we were on stage at Carnegie Hall. It was part of a big benefit show for Sting's charity, and she was supposed to start the number, and the way that the band was configured the guitar first chair, which was me, was right next to Nina. The, the piano was there, center stage, drum kit was behind her, guitar was right next to her. So she was supposed to start the song and I could see she just was staring into space. And I walked over to her and I whispered in her ear and I said, Nina, this is Pud. 
And she was like, Pud, like how many, she probably didn't know many people named Pud. And she thought of me as a little kid. And I said, yeah, Pud, you know, Beverly's son. My God, Pud, what are you doing here? <laughs> and, and she didn't even realize we had been rehearsing together for the last three or four days. And when, when I said that to her, I said, you have to start the song now. And she started the song. Oh, wow. And now I read somewhere that that was her last show. Okay. Okay. And then she still remembered your childhood. Now, yeah, because she was friends with my parents. And my parents were very, like you said, they were not musicians, but musicians hung around my parents. And my parents were very big music lovers. And they were bohemian, um, you know, Greenwich Village, New York, really cool couple. So I was around people like Nina Simone, Thelonious Monk, Gloria Lynn, um, Eartha Kitt, who was also a genius, by the mm -hmm. way. These people knew me because not many, uh, not many stars had children in those days. They would like if you look at Nina's daughter, she's a little bit old, uh, a little bit younger than me now. Same thing with like Nana Cherry, like her parents knew my parents, but she wasn't even born when I was when I was there. You know, what? so I was a five, six, seven, eight, nine year old, and they were just being born, so they were toddlers. Uh -huh. uh, you know, their children. So they decided to have kids a little later than my mom. My mom had me at 14 years old. So she she was one of the few people that actually had a child. So right. you have the classical background, but you were growing up around jazz. Do you see any division or it was just music that you were observing? What is this fusion in your head? How that works? So for me, the music feels the same. Whenever I think of the, the composers and the performers that I love, um, it runs the gamut. Uh, right before the pandemic hit, I was in, uh, in Austria and I went to Mozart's house. And because I've become friends with the Porsche family, Olive Porsche sits on the board of the Mozart Foundation or the Mozart Society mm -hmm. or whatever. Anyway, so not only did they take me into the private room where they take VIPs, but they also have a vault. So you not only see the first books that Mozart learned to read from, but I never realized, I guess maybe I forgot the story, that Mozart's older sister was also an incredible virtuoso. Mm -hmm. And father, they, they went around as a traveling little troupe. So they had this little kid playing with, you know, Wolfgang, and he's unbelievable. But you have the sister who is incredible, but a woman virtuoso pianist didn't get any real credit in those days. Yeah. But the father documented everything. So I went in the room and I could see and I'm like blown away. And to me, that was just as exciting as walking into a room and seeing, I don't know, um, James Brown's first recording or Elvis Presley's first recording I, I've done movies where I've gone into the to the vault and they've played me the the three track recordings from big musicals you know mm -hmm. where I was just it's like the greatest day of my life and I felt like that at Mozart's uh, house and I would feel like that um, if I went to Prokofiev's birthplace or, or whatever I mean you know this is what I grew up with These are the composers I love. 
especially as a guitarist, so many of that music has been transcribed for the guitar. So you get to, you know, I grew up playing these popular themes that were not originally written for guitar, but somehow um, they transcribed very well. Certain, you know, certain pieces, mm-hmm. obviously, certain pieces we can't play uh, with one guitar. You need two. But I played a lot of that music when I was younger and, of course, gravitated to it after I left the sort of, you know, the woodwind world. And I started playing it on a guitar because now I had harmonic accompaniment. Yeah, I didn't I wasn't able to just play the, the, the you know, the themes. Um, I could actually play, you know, the composition with harmonic accompaniment, like as if I were playing uh, pianoforte. I understand. And now, now knowing that you have the classical guitar background and being Brazilian, I have to ask oh, you about <laughs> I didn't know you were Brazilian. I am Brazilian. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I am from Brazil. I grew up, yeah, born and raised. Yeah. So what about Villa Lobos? Oh, come on. Of course. <laughs> no, that's what I was getting at. Of course. The greatest composer maybe ever for guitar, for classical guitar. I mean, uh, oh, my God. Um, ah, now yeah. you see, now <laughs> my head is just going. I'm hearing. Um, yeah, no, I love that. Uh, you see, this is you are a bad woman. Now my head is just going, <laughs> hearing all of this stuff. Um, and and look, look, so not just from a classical point of view, let's just talk about my God, from the jazz point of view, playing playing bossa novas. And I mean, oh, man, it's and still it, some of my favorite stuff to play. And it's, it's funny because I think the fact that I grew up in Brazil helps to, you know, not see many divisions between the in music. Because Villa Lobos, he was writing... Lots of uh, of harmonies that then the, the bossa nova and Tom Jobim like stole not not stole you know but <laughs> used and was inspired by of you know course. so yeah it's a it's a crossover world like in Brazilian music it's, it's already crossover so for me it's a, I didn't really saw any any division but you mm-hmm. have like the first album the second track oh, is São Paulo. Yes. So is that because of? Okay. So, oh my God. So when I was, when I was younger, maybe one of the most moving parts of my childhood was when I first saw the film, as we call it in English, uh, Black Orpheus. And yes. Remember when he's playing guitar for the little girl Mm -hmm. and uh, she's, she's dancing and she says, make the sunrise Orpheus. And he's playing. And I just, I was young uh 10 11 years old i don't remember but that scene just always made me cry and it was so beautiful there on the top of the mountain and looking down at the city and she's dancing and you could see it in the background so when i started to compose um in new york is you know a very urban city Mm -hmm. and we have a term in new york in the summertime we, when we go up on the roof, we call it Tar Beach, right? Because the roof is mm-hmm. usually lined with tar. And we go up and we have parties on the roof. And I knew that that Sao Paulo is more like New York 
see, people always think of Rio when they think of Brazil, right? It's all yeah. about Rio and, mm-hmm. and Carnival and blah, blah, blah. But because I'm a New Yorker, I went, wait a minute. What if we turn, <laughs> what if we turn Sao Paulo? What if they have the same tradition? Now, I had, I had not been to Brazil yet. So I was just guessing that maybe because Brazilians have soul and they, you know, they love to dance and party, that if, even though they're not near the beach, they must have their idea of creating a beach on the roof. So I just made it up. <laughs> And so it, if you listen to that song, it starts off with seagulls <laughs> and it yeah. sounds like we're on the beach. And we Yeah, and it was it was the right impression. And it's I'm so glad that you said that because now I know I'm not crazy. Because the first time I was in Manhattan, I thought of Sao Paulo and I I'm originally from the south of Brazil, mm-hmm. but I moved to the state of Sao Paulo when I was 13. And then I went to Sao Paulo to study music, to go to uh, university. And when I, the first time I was in Manhattan, I, I saw, I thought it reminds me of Sao Paulo so much, you know, especially like the Avenida Paulista. Mm-hmm. And it's a different vibe a little bit. We are more, I feel that we are more relaxed. But it's the same. But whenever I say that, people say, Alex, you're crazy, of course. But oh, <laughs> you're you're crazy. Uh, wow. I'm, I'm so happy to meet you and, and find out more oh. about you. I'm just really proud. It's, oh, it's thank great, you. Really I'm a lucky one, I have to say, you know, to have the opportunity to talk to you and to work with the proms. I always say that I am I'm the luckiest well, just the fact to live my life making music, it's already, I'm already blessed. I understand, right? <laughs> you know, so, so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a lucky one, definitely. It's when we become musicians, um, we almost understand that we're going to be poor, right? <laughs> well, I, like- you know, uh, we don't, uh, we don't become musicians because we think, at least I always thought about that you know it's not like oh i'm going to become like rich no you there is something that is something there that makes you feel that you belong at least with me that was what what made me you know and especially with the proms you know being being a woman conductor in the same way with you with the guitar you know i never saw the representativity there um i although i i mean i had my my, I have my idol, Mary Nossop, and I had, again, I'm lucky that I'm, I'm one of her, her protégés and I worked with her forever. And, but still, you hear so many things, like you cannot do this, you cannot do there, like your hair has to be up, no makeup, um, no jewelry. But then um, when I first started with the proms, I felt like, okay, it's okay to be myself. And then it, literally in five days, I was already the conductor that that they see now, you know, really like that. That's why I am I feel so lucky I'm there, you know, and uh, it really makes, give me the freedom to express in a certain way that I would not be able in other, you know, in other venues, so to speak. See, see that's, that's the blessing. That's the gift of music. Mm-hmm. So we do it because we love it. We're... The greatest gift is to be able to do it for a living. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. 
but still we we don't think we're going to be rich we're just doing it for a living but now you you're in a situation with night of the problems and you're you're playing in front of you know 15 20,000 people however however big the yeah. uh, the that arena is that uh, you you know that you perform in i believe it's still the same right that, yeah uh, okay, good. <laughs> Uh, so it's it's that's an incredible feeling because in the world of classical music, you rarely would have an audience that size. Like even if you're at the top level, right? So of course I've I've worked with Bocelli, I've worked with you know the, the superstar type of people, and yeah, mm-hmm. so they may have that, but the, you know us regular sort of working musicians, you don't get to play in front of twenty thousand people. Um, so that is incredible. And once you, once you make your statement in that world, like when they, you know, like when they did the three tenors and that crossed over to pop, once you make your statement in that world, all of a sudden it, it changes. People change and they see things differently. You know, it's, it's funny. I've been uh, fortunate enough to be with great, 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 uh, masters in certain situations and they've allowed me to conduct and to be amongst, you know, their orchestras. Um, there's so many things I could tell you. And we, I know we don't have time. Um, tell me. But my, but my, <laughs> no, my history is wonderful because um, I was very lucky in that the musicians I would work with and some of the people I work with, the, older people, the adults, were some of the biggest stars in music. Um, with one of my first bands, um, the, um, the their father was uh, Leopold Stokowski, <laughs> and their mother is Gloria Vanderbilt. So, like, my, you know, we were teenagers. So I got to sit in on rehearsals of the American Symphony with Leopold Stokowski. And and if you if you went to a concert with as we used to call him Leo, we go to a concert with Leo. The first thing he would do is he would sit down and he would draw a diagram of little dots, and it was everybody in that particular orchestra that night. You probably have never heard this story, but it was incredible. He would sit there, and I didn't know what he was doing. He's drawing dots, and as the program is going on, he's making check marks. probably I'm probably saying something bad. But he's making check marks and X, you know, X's and and check marks like good and bad. That person will never play with me. That person will never play with me. That person I love can always play with me. And um, and one day I I asked him, um, who's the person that you've worked with that you will always have play with you no matter what? And he said this very famous jazz bass player whose name was Richard Davis. And Richard Davis was a great concert, um, you know, contra bass player. And um, and he said, Richard Davis. And that just made my heart flutter. And I'm like going, wow, a guy who's known for jazz is the person that you want in your symphony orchestra anytime you conduct. So, you know, this is probably what you're, this is, that was a long way of saying that music is just music. Mm-hmm. And, to think that Leopold Stokowski says that Richard Davis, this black jazz musician, was the most perfect interpreter 
of the music that mm-hmm. he's conducting. Um, and and I'm I'm sure that that's not a story that people know because this was just no. me sitting there and being like, oh my god, you know. But anyway, uh, so I had that kind of childhood where I was next to really great people. And if you look, because you you said that you noticed that my single, the B side of my first single, was Sao Paulo. If you look at the credits on the album, it's all people from the New York Philharmonic are my background players. It's because I went to school with so many people that after we, you know, they may have continued at either Juilliard or Manhattan School of Music or Manus, um, but I was lucky enough to get a job with Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. So I, in my first day at school, it was like, okay, do I go to school or do I take this job? <laughs> I took the job. I was 18. Is a choice. Right. Uh, I could already read music. I already am pretty good with theory. I'm going to take this job with Sesame Street because who knows where that where that might lead. And we were very poor and I was going to make money. Uh, I, I had to take the job. And I figured I could always go back to the extension division next year or whatever. But all of a sudden playing jazz and pop became my life, even though that's not what I had intended to do. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned something that it's all everybody I'm talking with from all backgrounds. Um, We always come to the music education part. And Mm -hmm. I truly think that it's, uh, it's part of the music education system that sort of make this division you know and because in the end of the day you learn by doing it Mm -hmm. and I think that we miss to have more of the sense I think that we miss the structure in general but I think that we miss also the sense of liberation of the and to understanding of the pop music in the classical world Um, and we were just trying to find solutions for that because we we are all proud to like okay I, I I can read music and you know it's it's it helps a lot you know especially if you are working with an orchestra and a band it it truly helps a lot but then for instance for me when I worked with youth orchestras and sometimes with professional orchestras we spend most of the time trying to make people understand what's behind the notes mm-hmm what? It's exactly right. So it, it's funny. A, f- a few years ago, uh, I conducted the National Youth. Um, I, I think they're, they're called the National Youth Symphony of Costa Rica. And, and then uh, it was a part of a big festival or something. And then later, either later that night or the next day, I conducted the, the National Symphony. And they were almost all the same players. <laughs> It was like, <laughs> so I had already been friendly now with all the new players that I was going to conduct. And uh, I remember one of the women, um, she was a, a, a contrabassist, and she she says, uh, excuse me, uh, Mr. Rogers, do you mind if I sing the next song? And I went, what? So I was like, she's going to sing. Now, everybody, of course, with the symphony knew that she could sing. I, of course, didn't know it. 
So I felt a little bit uncomfortable, but I said, okay, sure. Um, and, uh, and she came and she sang the song that I had written called We Are Family. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's interesting because the chart that I used, even though I changed it a bit, was actually from Night of the Proms. And she came out and sang, she sang We Are Family and it was incredible. The crowd went crazy and it was so much fun. And, and then she explained to me that uh, a few years before, uh, I guess the, the president of Costa Rica disbanded the army and put the money into music or arts education. Mm-hmm. So when you go to Costa Rica, uh, or you know, at least when I went there, uh, you know, I noticed that they knew every, like regular people, like young kids, they knew classical music, jazz music, they knew pop music, music that I thought was old and not in fashion anymore in America. The kids knew. Like when, uh, like Duran Duran songs and Madonna and all that stuff, everybody knew everything. I was like, wow, this is incredible. And I thought, wouldn't that be an amazing thing if every country decided, let's put that music from the army into Mm -hmm. arts. What would the world be like? We have lots of programs like that in South America right now. And that inspired also the Orchids in Baltimore. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that little by little people are realizing the importance of having kids to play an instrument and yes. exposing them to all sorts of arts um, and music making. But, you know, I think that sometimes we need that enthusiasm and that understanding of, you know, how sports are good for kids. But when you give when you give a kid an instrument and you give you you make them to play with other kids or with other musicians um there is something that happens that in silence so to speak because they are not talking but they are listening you know they are they learn how to listen and support each other and it's a teamwork but um oh, how can i explain that you know, yeah. and I, I can explain, I understand and I can explain it really well. So they hired me as music director um, for the United Nations for a special occasion. And I now had to work with people from, um, I don't even remember how many countries, but let's just make up a number. Let's say 30 different countries. And many of those countries and many of those people's histories were, we hate each other. We we're at war, you know, you're Muslim, but you're a different type of Muslim than I am, or you're Christian or you're this and that you speak French. I speak whatever. So now I'm the person that's got to make this all work. And I cannot tell you how the Palestinians played with the Israelis and different African, uh, you know, like um, Salif Keda and, and people like that would play with different. I mean, it was unbelievable to me. And, and I, and all I kept thinking was what if to be a politician that the only way that you could be the president of a country or the minister or the prime minister of a country is if you had to play a musical instrument and before any negotiation, 
you would have to sit down with somebody else. You'd have to sit down with Angela Merkel and she played an instrument and you sat down and you had to play together. Then you start negotiating. What do you think would have happened? Because I watched these people who normally would fight and kill each other or their parents would. And the next thing I know, they were all getting along because they had to play music and it had to be good. Right. <laughs> and they cared about it being good uh, first. And then they talked about politics after that. But when we were playing music, forget the politics, forget the religion, forget whatever. The music had to music be good. First. They, wanted to be, they wanted to perform their best. And I'm so proud of that concert. And they told me it was one of the best shows that they had ever had at the United Nations. And it was so ambitious to pull all those different countries and all those different musicians together and I hope that I have a chance to do something else like that. But uh, it was one of the proudest moments of my life. It was incredible. I imagine. And I saw it work. I saw people who normally would hate each other if they were just walking down the street or whatever come together. And it, it, was, it was so beautiful. It was incredible. But isn't it that, that sensation, that feeling, what makes us become musicians? Isn't it? Yes. Well, let's let's finish with with one thing. Um, what will be your advice for the future generation of musicians? I think it's just like you and I. We <laughs> do this because we love it. You, you. I, I always say the thing that's helped me more than anything is learning to embrace failure because whenever I didn't get the thing that I wanted in a strange way, I wound up getting more than I could have ever wished for because that, that thing that didn't work taught me, Hmm, how do I go about this differently so that the next time I have an opportunity like this, that maybe I'll get the thing that I was trying to get. And that's been so good for me because as you know, most music, just like every other business in the world, most new businesses fail. Most new music fails. And what keeps you going is your ability to love it and want to express yourself and just be a good performer or feel good about what you did. And even if somehow the people don't appreciate it, but you know that you could look in the mirror and say, I played, I played the program pretty well tonight. And, you know, um, and you just say, well, next time, look, in, in my band, our motto is if we have a bad show, which doesn't happen very often, we just say, I feel sorry for that next audience because we're going to go out and, <laughs> <laughs> and that next audience, we're going to slay them, you know, because we feel, we feel it's our, it's our priority. You know, people have paid money. They've, they've given you the time. They've done all of these things that they, they've gone out of their way to appreciate your art and your performance and whatever. And it's your responsibility to 
give them the best because they've given you their best. And um, so I just say that just never, never stop believing. Just, just keep, just keep going because one day you hit that magic note and it's, (laughs) Oh my God. You know, it's like, it, it happened today is the day that it happened. And we never know when that day is going to come, but just be ready. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. Oh my God. I cannot express how happy I am on how. Uh, Believe me, the feeling is completely mutual and absolute pleasure. I'm so proud of you. My pleasure. Give my love to everybody at the, at the office and Jan and the whole crew and it's really a pleasure thank you for listening this was our season finale but don't worry we'll be back very soon with a second season and many special guests meanwhile you can check the first season in your favorite podcast platform don't forget to subscribe to Beethoven was a Rockstar and for more information follow us on Instagram Facebook and YouTube channel see you next time